The Bible reading for today is from Romans chapter 4, verse 1 to 25. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits as righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised, who not only are circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet, he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were not written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who also raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and relates to life for our justification. Jasmine, thank you. Beautiful reading. Thank you so much. Yeah, look, at people giving you applause. That's wonderful. Brilliant reading. Thank you so much. And Sarah, wherever you are, thank you for the lovely uh, thanks. Uh, really appreciate that, and it's a, and it's a nice little segue actually. As I start, I was uh, I was going to start this morning by saying, this week marks about the almost to the week the four year anniversary of me starting at Kerry as a as a pastor. 
And uh, so I thought we'd do a little quick trip down memory lane um, and, uh, and share with you a couple of places that Helen and I lived before we arrived here. So I've got a slide uh, of several places we lived. So we met in London, uh, lived there for a few years. Then we moved to Melbourne together, uh, had the kids. Uh, so that's the one on the... You, you'll recognise these, of course. That's on the right-hand side there, top right. And then on the bottom left, we moved to Anchorage, Alaska for a few years before coming to sunny Perth. And I guess I'd say that we love Perth. We are fully persuaded that this is the place uh, that we are meant to be living at the moment. We love living here. And uh, I guess in COVID time, there's a, there's a whole bunch of advantages to living in Perth. But the lifestyle is great. Uh, we love the people. Of course, I've also uh, done a few different jobs before arriving at Kerry. Um, I, I was a groundsman briefly. Uh, at a school, so, you know, making cricket pitches and looking after gardens. Um, I was an ice cream scooper, brief part-time job that I had, uh, an engineer, a communications guy, um, and now I'm a pastor and I have to say that I am, I'm fully persuaded that this is the place I'm meant to be right now. This is, I mean, the ice cream scoop job didn't work out, but other than that, this is, this is the job that I'm supposed to be doing, so thank you. Thank you for having me as your pastor here at Kerry. Uh, love what we're doing here. I love what God is doing through us here. Uh, and it's just a real blessing. So just thought I'd share that with you as we, Helen and I, just um, reflect on four years of being at Kerry. And I thought I'd share that with you as we begin this morning, as well, before we begin, I guess. Because today we're continuing our walk through Romans, uh, this incredible book. And one of the things that I'm really enjoying about it is uh, walking through it sequentially. Uh, last week, we heard from Brian, uh, Dr. Brian Harrison. And a little plug, uh, if you, well, whether you saw it or not last week, go and watch it again. Uh, it was fantastic. It's on our Kerry YouTube channel. Um, and, and to recap a couple of highlights, so uh, Brian, I think, coined the phrase traitorous, kinky cannibals to refer to the early Christians, uh, certainly what they would have been seen as in Rome. Uh, brilliant. Traitorous, kinky cannibals. So if you want to know more about that, uh, go and listen to the sermon. Uh, but there were some very sort of more serious points in there as well. Uh, Brian was talking about the end of chapter 3 of Romans, and he said that Paul was talking to people and saying, your view of God is too small. You're seeing God as too small. He's a whole lot bigger than you're thinking about him. And your view of yourself is too big. It's a little bit too inflated. He also had this excellent expression about the question we should ask is not, who are you or who am I, but whose are you? Whose am I? And the final bit that I just want to recap to, to whet your appetite, but also as we move into the next part, is uh, Brian gave this excellent story, which, which I'm assuming Brian was hypothetical, but uh, he gave this excellent story about a family travelling up uh, north somewhere in Perth. And it was a story about understanding justification and being credited with righteousness. And so this family heads north. And after a long car trip, mum and dad fall asleep and the kids trash the place because they've been fed up with lollies on the way. And the next morning, the management of the, the, the place 
comes and says, what, what's happened? You've trashed the place. Somebody has to pay. Now, it was the kids who trashed the place, but the parents pull out the credit card. And so what happens for the children is that they are seen as being reconciled, as justified. They, they're credited with the righteousness because somebody else paid. Their debt is expunged. And it was a great outlining of what Paul's talking about where we get credited with this righteousness that's not ours, but we get it given to us by grace. So as we walk through this, this book, that was Brian's summary, quick summary of Brian. He does it much better, so go and watch it. Talking about the back end of chapter 3. And what I'm finding fascinating is there's a lot of repetition. So if you've been with us through this whole series, you'll see that there's all these things that Paul keeps talking about. And he repeats them. And in a way, that's what's going to happen for us this morning. Again, we're talking about justification, about righteousness, and about the fact that it comes through faith. So that phrase, in fact, justified by faith, it started in chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul said, this is what I'm talking about. And then last week, in chapter 3, verse 21, this week we'll talk about it again. Next week, chapter 5, verse 1, it's repeated but for good reason. Paul looks at it from different angles. And this morning, we're going to be talking about Paul drawing on his kind of trump card here. He says, if I had to give my best example of who I could point to for this, he says, I'm going to point to the father of the nation, to Father Abraham. The father of the nation, the founding father. Now, as I thought about that, I thought, what's our analogue for that? What, what do we think of when we think of the founding father? This is Paul's kind of big example. And the phrase founding father, to me, I immediately went to my very limited knowledge of American history. So if you, if you know about American history, they sort of formed as a nation around the Declaration of Independence. And, and the phrase founding fathers there is used for a group of people that include George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, John and Sam Adams, this group of people who are the founding fathers because they wrote this thing called the Declaration of Independence and begun the nation, began the nation. Well, what about us as Australia? Who, who would you say our founding father or fathers or mothers or founding people were? Well, I've got a few names as possible examples. Captain Arthur Phillip, sort of the first governor of the first colony, perhaps, or how about a guy called Sir Henry Parks who championed the idea that the colonies should come together and federate? Or our first Prime Minister, Sir Edmund Barton, surely the founding father of the nation. These are sort of names that you could say they are our founding fathers. Now, none of these names are Indigenous. None of them represent First Nations, so I absolutely recognise that. But I think what they do is they, they sort of represent the shaping of the current nation states that we would call Australia or America. So that's kind of my best idea of an, an analogy. But, but I don't think it comes close to what the Jewish people would have thought of Father Abraham. Because I think every Jewish person could um, follow their own line, their own genealogy back to Abraham. They'd follow it up through the 12 tribes of Israel to Abraham. They all had a descendants. They were all descendants from Abraham. He was renowned as sort of the father figure of 
following the law of being a godly man. And so Paul uses him as the best example he can come up with of someone who was justified by faith. Now, here we start getting into an interesting area. What does that mean? What sort of faith did Abraham have? And this is what Paul unpacks for us in chapter 4. And perhaps the two words that stood out to me most as Paul writes this particular chapter was the idea of being fully persuaded. In verse 21, Paul says this is the type of faith that Abraham had. He was fully persuaded that God had the power to do everything he had promised to do. Fully persuaded. So it's not a description of a faith that's fatalistic. It's not a description of a faith that says, I kind of hope this is going to happen. I'm, you know, just putting it all out there. I just hope. And it's not a description of a fearful faith. One that says, if this doesn't happen, I'm stuffed. If this doesn't happen, it's going to be terrible. It's neither of those two things. Paul's describing Abraham's faith as being something confident, fully persuaded that changes the way Abraham lives and goes forward. It's a positive walk forward. It's also not a faith based on something expected. So I I, I think I've sometimes perhaps talked about faith of, you know, you step on an aeroplane, I have faith that it's going to fly. Well, yes, okay, we all did physics at school and, you know, a big hunk of metal is unlikely to fly. But we also did the physics that said, you know, the airflow that goes under and over the wing and raises it. We have faith because the airplane could crash. I have faith. But the reality is, in my experience at least, and I've been on a few airplanes, the probable outcome of me hopping on an aeroplane, the likely outcome, I would argue, is that it's going to fly and I'm going to be okay. So I can have faith in that, but, but I think that's not the faith that's being talked about here. This is faith in something unlikely, in something improbable. Paul gives two examples of this faith of Abraham. Uh, He talks about God's promise that they would have a child in their 90s. And a promise that they would have descendants that would become a great nation. Now, the words used about Abraham and perhaps Sarah's mindset were this. They faced facts that their reproduction systems were as good as dead. So the faith that's being talked about here is not a faith of something that's likely to happen. It's faith in the face of reality that says this thing God promises is unlikely, even improbable or impossible. And fully facing that reality... Abraham was fully persuaded and it was credited to him as righteousness. So let's shift now and just ask ourselves a question, in whom did Abraham have this faith? What sort of God is this? And there's this great phrase that's also stood out to me here, it's the God who justifies the ungodly, verse 5 of chapter 4. Abraham had faith in God who justifies the ungodly. Now, on on one level, of course, us Christians would say, yes, of course, that's what God does. He justifies the ungodly. But let's think about it a little more deeply. Particularly, if you were a Jewish person at that time, you might be familiar with Exodus chapter 23, verse 7. 
which says this, you are not to judge the ungodly as righteous. So we have an explicit scripture which says, no, 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 you cannot judge the ungodly as righteous. And now Paul's describing this God of the God who justifies the ungodly. This is really confronting if you are a Jewish person listening to what Paul's saying. He's saying, could God be the God who justifies the ungodly? I know there's that peace in the Old Testament, but that's not actually what it means. This is God who justifies the ungodly. And he says, because that's who Abraham was. Abraham was not a godly person in the sense that he obeyed the law. The law hadn't been given at this point. He was not a godly person in the sense that he hadn't been circumcised. That covenant hadn't been given yet. At this moment, he was ungodly. And God chose to justify Abraham through faith. It has huge implications for how we understand, Paul is saying, who God is. And huge implications for how we understand how these covenants of God are conveyed. Paul's reframing the understanding of uh, the, the, the covenants and how they work. He's saying that using Abraham as an example, we see that these covenants that God made work by faith. Abraham entered into it through his faith. And, and these statements Paul are making are based entirely on Scripture in Genesis about Abraham's faith. And he says it's faith that allows all, in fact, to enter it. He uses the phrase, the one who shares the faith of Abraham. That's, that's how people can enter this faith of Abraham. He's incorporating the ungodly, the Gentiles, as well as the Jews. Paul's also pointing out that it's faith that fulfills this covenant. Faith in Jesus and Jesus' faithfulness. That is faith that enables the whole covenant, that God is faithful to his promises. And so he has this complex scripture right at the start of chapter 1 where he says the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, Romans 1.17. It's all about faith, Paul says, and we get that because we can see that right from the beginning with Father Abraham, the covenant was stepped into by faith. And then Paul closes this chapter by making the point he's been building up to. And I'll just read these last few verses. He says, the words it was credited to him, so I'm in verse 23. Paul says, the words it was credited to him were written not for him alone. So he's making this transition. I've given you the example. Now I'm saying this was not just written for Abraham. This was written for us, Roman readers. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So Paul now makes this transition and he says, this is the fulfillment of the covenant. If we believe by faith, we're invited, just like Abraham was, was to step in by faith into what God is offering. We follow the footsteps of Father Abraham and by faith in him who raised Jesus from the dead, we also have access into the righteousness that's offered. So that's Paul's message to his readers. 
And each time we get to the end of one of these passages, I think, okay, well, what, what does that mean for us? Some of it sort of seems obvious. Some of it we've heard before. Some of it's a bit Christianese. But I want to give you two conclusions, I guess, that I want to draw, that, I, that I've drawn in thinking about this particular passage. And the first one is a conclusion, a question about my view of who is saved. My view of who's saved. This is a God who justifies the ungodly. Justifies the ungodly. Now, I'm not a universalist. I'm not trying to say everybody's saved. But it seems here that the crediting with righteousness comes simply from being fully persuaded that Jesus is Lord. And I can't help but wonder, maybe that includes more than I've thought before. I wonder how my actions, my activities, how my beliefs should shift in thinking that this is a God who justifies the ungodly. And my second conclusion really is around this word fully persuaded. I've been challenged this week to reimagine what it means to live a life of faith, to live fully persuaded that through Jesus, righteousness and forgiveness are ours. Fully persuaded that there's a new life on offer, that, that if God can raise from the dead, surely he can do everything he's promised. Surely he can change our lives. To live a life that's fully persuaded that God's actively at work here and now in your life and my life. And to be fully persuaded that I'm loved enough by this God to invite me into what he's doing. And it raised a question also in my mind of what am I fully persuaded? Of what am I fully persuaded? Now I've already shared, fully persuaded that living in Perth right now is a good idea. Fully persuaded this is where we're supposed to be. And it has big impacts for us. There are some benefits. In COVID time we're living the, living the dream in this place. But there are some real challenges. I'm fully persuaded in the light of the pain that Helen and I don't get to see our parents anywhere near as often as we'd like to. We don't get to see our sisters, hang out with our nieces and nephews. But nonetheless, I'm fully persuaded this is where we're supposed to be. And I'm fully persuaded that we are called to serve here at Kerry. Fully persuaded that this is the place for us and yet it changes everything about our lives, where we live, the people we get to hang out with. It's shaping who we're becoming. So my question for you, I guess, is what are you fully persuaded about? What are you fully persuaded about? I think if, if I, if we become absolutely fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he promised, then we can look at any circumstance with underlying hope. We can look at any enemy with love. And we can live with an underlying joy in the face of reality. So I'm excited by that. And yet I don't want to close on that. I, I, I want to share one other thing. It's this idea that it's only by God's grace that we're saved. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness, yes, but only in God's grace. And I'm convinced that I want to be fully persuaded. I'm pretty sure I'm fully persuaded. 
How's your faith today? Would you say fully persuaded, like 100%? Or maybe, well, I'm pretty persuaded. Look, I'm here, aren't I? 95%? But what level credits me with righteousness? Fully sounds like 100, doesn't it? And so I have this question just in the back of my mind, does, what about if I'm not quite yet today fully persuaded? Does that disqualify me? Does that disqualify me from this relationship, from this restoration, from being credited with righteousness? Well, let's read a snippet out of Mark 9 to, to answer that question. There was, uh, there was a guy who brought a sick child to the disciples and say, to, to, to heal the child, but, but the disciples couldn't do it. And the disciples and the Pharisees were arguing and, and there's a bit of a kerfuffle and Jesus comes over. And he asks the boy's father, well, how long's your boy been like this? And the father says, from childhood, um, this spirit's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and please heal my son. If you can, says Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Press pause on the reading. Sounds like you have to be fully persuaded, doesn't it? Sounds like it's all about the guy's faith. If you can, Jesus says, if you really had faith, your son would be healed. If you're fully persuaded, everything hangs on your faith. That would be the impression you might have if you stopped there. But let's keep reading. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. A desperate statement but one that I identify with, and I, and I wonder if you do, that at times we want to say, I believe, but, but help me believe more. I'm pretty persuaded. Please help me be fully persuaded. So what happened? Well, when Jesus saw a crowd running to the scene, this is verse 25, he rebuked the spirit, said, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The boy is healed. Healed because of the grace and love of Jesus. Healed because of what Jesus did. Healed in the presence of a father wrestling with the full persuasion of faith. And I can only imagine that after that, he was more fully persuaded. And so as we come to the end of this morning and I'm about to pray... I just feel like the prospect of being fully persuaded like Abraham was, that's the faith that I want to grab hold of. Fully persuaded in all circumstances. And yet I find myself sometimes with the Father saying, I believe, help me in this area of unbelief. Help me with my faith. And so I want to pray together this morning. Perhaps that resonates with you. That we might pray together for this reimagined life of full faith. But Lord, help us with our unbelief. Thank you that it's your grace and your grace alone that brings this to us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you for Paul's example, for Abraham's example. Thank you that it's 
your faith that you have the power to do everything that you've promised. And your faith for those promises is what we rely on. Your grace in giving us those promises. Thank you that you justify the ungodly, including us. We want to pray this morning for Abrahamic faith, that we might be fully persuaded that you can do all that you promise, that our lives might be lived in light of that belief, that our lives might be transformed into the new life that you offer. And yet, sometimes, Father, we struggle. And so along with the father of this sick child in Mark 9, we pray, we believe, but help our unbelief. And we leave ourselves open to your grace and mercy. In the name of your precious son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.